Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Happy Sunday. It's um, wonderful to see you guys here today. It's a hard Sunday to be alive. Um, and it's clearly a hard Sunday to do Sunday service. Uh, I hope you guys have been doing well. I know there's been a lot going on <laughs> right now um, in the midst of quarantine and in the midst of the elections. I know it's actually the first, today's November 1st. Let's all sit And think about the fact that we have been in this pandemic for seven, seven months, seven months. It has been seven months since we've been able to worship. Um, so yeah, I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys are doing okay. Um, we are going to, to today's sermon topic is, is, As you know, it's in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is not something that I have decided or written, uh, so I just want to preface this with the fact that the book of Acts was written by God, and it was given to me in March, so if it sounds relevant to the week, it's not because of me. Just I just want to clarify that. I think God is holding on to our church, and I think it is in and of itself encouragement to me that God is moving and he's trying to walk with us and that he had anticipated a lot of things to occur and is with us even now. So yeah, we'll be continuing through our sermon series on Acts. If you guys can open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 25, Acts chapter 25 verse 1 through 12. For those of us who are still getting accustomed to the book of Acts, the book of Acts is after the book of John and it is before the book of Romans, Acts 25. Verse 1 through 12. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. And he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days. Well, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? 
But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we just thank you for this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us, that you are guiding us. We thank you, God, that you move in our hearts and that you continue to press in into this season, into this journey that our church is on. God, I just pray that at this time you would guide each and every individual, Father, to be able to see you, to be able to know you more. Jesus, we live in hard times to be alive. We live in confusing seasons. God, I just pray that you would continue to move in the hearts of those who love you, hearts of those whom you love. God, I pray that as I preach your word, Father, it would be your word and your word alone that speaks directly to hearts. Hide us behind your cross, that only you are magnified and that only you are glorified. We give you glory in this time. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Today, we'll be talking about power and legal authority and government and corruption and what it means to be Christian and navigate legal systems. So that's what we'll be talking about today. We see the example of Paul. So we'll, the title for today's sermon is to be Christian and a citizen, to be a Christian citizen. And the main idea for today's passage is God gives Paul wisdom to circumvent or go around corrupt power legally and preach the gospel. I'm going to say that one more time. God gives Paul wisdom to circumvent corrupt power legally and preach the gospel. So the context of this passage, we skipped over a brief portion. Last week we talked about, um, last week we talked about Paul and the Jews and we talked about how Paul witnessed with integrity against Tertullus. Um, but we skipped a bit of a portion and then now we're in Acts 25. And in Acts 25, um, at this point, Paul, it's a bit of a time shift. So from last week, where we talked about how Paul had integrity, this week, to this week's passage, two years have gone by. I know, it's kind of hard to like gauge. But basically, since last week's sermon to this week's sermon, Paul has been in jail for two years. Felix has been talking with him back and forth, constantly having conversation with him, because Felix was hoping that Paul would bribe him to leave. But Paul doesn't bribe him, so Paul stays in jail for two years. This guy Festus takes over Felix's position, and Felix leaves Paul in jail to appease the Jews. So from this point, Paul has been in jail for two years for no reason. Okay? That's what's going on right now. And there's this new governor, and his name is Festus, and this same old 
rotten old, crooked old Jewish council. Right? And there's a renewal of the charge of the Jews. So as soon as, as soon as Festus gets appointed, the Jews are like, ah, new governor, fresh face. And they try again. They do a renewal of the charge that they made two years ago with Felix. They give a report on what Paul has done. They implore him to, to bring back that case. They request the transfer from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And then they plot an ambush on the way. Four exact, very similar, very consistent four verbs, right? Gives the report on Paul, implores Festus, requests a transfer, and plots an ambush. Same old crooked government. Same old, same old, right? And they, they, why, why do they redo this? Why do they redo this? Why do you think they do this all over again? It's been two years. But they appeal again and they do the whole thing again and even up to the ambush. They plot the ambush again. This time, it doesn't seem like it's by zealots. This time, it seems like the government themselves is plotting an ambush on the way from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So they're trying to kill Paul through the transfer. Why do they do this? Because Festus is new. And they are old. Now, Festus acts with integrity and does not budge here. He says, I don't want to rephrase it this way because it might not be totally accurate, but this is how I understand Festus to be talking. It's basically like, no, I'm good. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? They're like, oh, can you bring him over to Jerusalem? They're like, nah, I'm good. (laughs) Y'all can come here. I'm good. It's chill. We can do it here. Why don't y'all come over here? There's no need to move. And 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 Paul should speak into this situation as well. Y'all are not the only ones to get to determine where it happens, right? So Festus kind of puts his foot down and he shows integrity. He shows a moment of fairness. He says, if Paul is found to be guilty, and he shows he has this moment of integrity with Paul. Now, this is a very important moment. It's a moment of fear for Paul because no one knows who's coming in and the Jews are powerful. No one knows who's coming in. Like, I mean, if you think about it from the perspective of Paul, Paul's been in jail for two years. He's been talking to this governor for two years and then that governor gets this seceded with a new person, right? A whole new person. And nobody knows what Festus is like. It's just this completely new face. It's a very scary moment for Paul, right? And the Jews, they remain powerful. See, the Roman province, they don't want to shake up Jerusalem because there are a lot of people in Jerusalem. So if there's a riot in Jerusalem, they can lose control. The Roman governor or tribune or province person, whatever it may be, that provincial politician and the Jews and the Jewish authorities are constantly in this strained dynamic where they're not just, you know, this hierarchical relationship, but the Jews have some sort of leverage to be able to push back and forth. And that's why you see these Romans, they keep trying to show favor to the Jews. They keep trying to appease them. It's because the Jews are big. And when there are a lot of them, there's power. 
So we see here that there's there's a lot there's a lot of there's a lot of power dynamics going on. There's this old chief priest. There's this new、uh, governor, and there's this bit of a struggle, right? Because they renew the thing that didn't work two years ago. They're like, well. You know, maybe this guy is weaker. You know, Felix, he was a he was a bit experienced, but maybe this guy is is weaker. And in this time of transition, while things are being up, upheaved and laws are being redone, and there's this whole new guy, the Jews are like, now's our moment, and they go in for it. This kind of transitional period is very, as much as the Jews are corrupt. It's very common for these kinds of things to happen. For example, when political leaders of any region or any country change, there's a moment where everything is back in limbo, and everyone starts fighting for their cause again. Right? When the president shifts of our nation, and our whole nation just kind of tumbles into chaos. Because everybody has an opportunity to fight for what they care about again. People are anxious to keep the throne of one party. Another party is anxious to fight for what they believe in. It's it's a the power struggle that happens in a transitional time is 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 very very high strung and tense. And the long-standing regional leaders are trying to shake up this new guy. But this doesn't just happen in political parties. This doesn't just happen in moments of politics. But often, it also happens in moments of religion, when pastors change, and the whole thing is rewritten all over again. North Boston has gone through a lot of pastoral shifts. I must say. The transition between me and Johan might have been one of the more extreme ones. <laughs> This、uh, really nice, kind, generous, you know, father of three, and to this small girl from New York that starts yapping in people's faces. Right? It was a very, it was a very stark transition. But even when we think about the most recent pastoral transition that our ministry has seen,、uh, we think about it's. There was a lot of there was a moment where the whole ministry had to change all over again. New powers meant new authorities meant lots and lots of shifts, and it also often meant a clash between what might be considered what was before and what was coming in. And so we see here. So it's not it's not uncommon to our church. Our church has seen so many. It's not uncommon to this area where the turnover rate is so high. Uh, it's not uncommon in church splits. It's not uncommon anywhere, right? This is a very common situation that happens in all areas where there are any level of politics, a politic of power, or a politic of governance, anything to that effect. This happens, right? And it this this time is just no exception. The long-standing old regional leaders they come in, they renew their case, and they try to push for something that didn't happen before that they care about. But Festus acts with integrity, and so the Jews they have nothing to say, and the trial happens. Right? The trial happens. The first thing you learn about this time, as opposed to two years ago when the Jews brought in Tertullus or Tertullus, is that they 
were not as disciplined or they were not as streamlined. It seems as though, uh, this is an assumption, it's, it might be too big of an assumption, but it almost seems as though they had focused all their time on, like, they focused all their time on that plot and that request to move Paul to, um, move Paul to Jerusalem that they hadn't been able to actually present a solid case. So they, it says in verse seven, it says, when he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. That's all that's said about their case. It seems as though there's less that they can do. And Paul says, I have not done anything of offense against the laws, the Jews, the emperor. At this point, at this point, it's clear, Paul doesn't say, Paul doesn't say, he doesn't even bring into account here whether or not the gospel of Jesus Christ is consistent with the law. All Paul says in this trial is he says, and and this, this is a quote in verse Eight, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. It's clear here that it's not just about... There's a clear line between religion and politics in the way that Paul is talking. It almost seems like he compartmentalizes his faith just for a brief moment to state a very obvious claim. That this is a legal trial and that he has not broken the law. Paul, later on, does preach the gospel to Festus and King Agrippa. We'll see that next week. We'll see that next week. Um, I'm going to leave that for a good because that's that's another goldmine there. But at this point, Paul just states the obvious. They can't prove that I did anything wrong. Paul is called still to be Christian right in the middle of the trial. He doesn't bring up their corruption. He doesn't bring up their ambush. He doesn't say anything. Just as a man of integrity, all he says is, I have not broken the law. And he appeals to the emperor. Now, this is really, this is really important. I know this seems like a little bit teachy, and I know that this passage seems a little teachy, but there's a a good bit of golden nuggets in the way that Paul deals with this situation in particular, that might show us how to navigate today. See, in a a court of law, how you say things is really important. I've, I've given this example before, but in a court of law, how you address people, how you address yourself, and what words you use is very, very, very important. Right, because in law, what is the question in 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 most situations? In most situations in the world, you use words to explain or describe a situation. For example, I am standing before you guys talking into a mic about the gospel of Jesus Christ in the Book of Acts. Right, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm practically doing. 
But I just explained to you guys what I'm doing. I just put words to explain and list out what I'm acting out, what you are seeing visually, what you are hearing audibly. I'm using words to articulate. But in the law, what is being discussed and what is the substance and what is the context is the words themselves. This is really important. In any, in any, any court of law, in any law that existed from, t- from, from the times of old until now, even 2000 BC with Hammurabi's code, like law, when it comes to law and when it comes to being, staying in a trial, the thing that is important is the, they are the words themselves that are important. Sometimes even what has actually happened takes a backseat to how it is explained. That's why lawyers are so, that's why lawyers make so much money. Because with the right words, a lawyer can reframe a situation regardless of the facts where it does not break the law. More words. Some of y'all might be like, oh yeah, that's all semantics. But semantics is what your country is built on. So if you're not willing to at least face that element of law, you're kind of, you're screwing yourself over, right? And so Paul clearly understands this well, right? Like, let me give an example of that. Let's say, let's say a boy has become a school shooter. Right? I don't like talking about this. But let's say a boy has become a school shooter. Boy takes the gun. Boy was bullied. He takes the gun. He shoots somebody. And then he shoots himself in the head. Right? And the family sues the school for being negligent in bullying. Right? One lawyer will call that kid a plaintiff or the criminal or the shooter. The person defending the boy will call him student, will call him a son, will call him a minor, will call him a a child. Because depending on even how you address a person, there are There are biases in an individual that are invoked. Empathy is invoked. If I call the boy a shooter, all you think of is the gun. But if I call the boy a son, you're forced to remember that he is a member of a family. If I call the boy a student, you're forced to remember that he is only 13. Right? And so words are everything in a court of law. These men bring a charge against Paul using a lot of words and invoking a lot of laws. But Paul, and and it all is based on the fact that Paul is Christian. It's all based on the fact that Paul preaches the message of Jesus Christ and is a leader of the church. But Paul doesn't even address that here. All he says, I have not done anything to offend the law of the Jews, the temple, or the emperor. When he says that one statement, you're forced to remember that Paul is a Christian, that Paul is a Pharisee by birth, and that Paul is a Roman citizen. Paul does 
not invoke the gospel here? How come? Why? Why does Paul do it by the law? Isn't he a Christian? How come Paul makes a statement that is almost completely secular? Why does Paul do that? This is a situation that is hard to understand, right? One thing that I can say is that complex situations require complex solutions. This situation in and of itself speaks to something that is very common in our country today, where religion and politics and this livelihood of individuals are married to one another in a way that is toxic and hurtful. Paul seeks to entangle the case from his faith. Because what he believes in ain't got nothing to do with the law. Some people might say, as a leader, Paul is inconsistent. I say Paul is wise. He is dealing with a situation with a proportionate amount of wisdom that is necessary. In a court of law, he is dealing with the law. Of course, he preaches the gospel without, without fear and courage. Paul is not fearing dying at this point. He's just being wise. Some of you guys might say this is very unchristian of Paul. Is Paul not supposed to stand in that court of law and profess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? See, Paul is not, he is not being inconsistent with his faith. The purpose of Paul preserving his life is to preach the gospel. Because God had told him, you got to go to Rome. The motivations of Paul is where you see his faith. But in the situation, what you see is a proportionate response to a proportionate situation surrounding power and corruption. Paul asks for fairness. He asks for justice in this situation. He holds his integrity. He maintains that he has not done any wrong and he hasn't. It is extremely Christian of him to do it by the book. It's extremely Christian of him. Sometimes wisdom is given. And he continues on. He says, he, at this point, Festus realizes that this trial has nothing to do with the law. As soon as 
the Jews present their case and Paul presents his, Festus realizes the nature of the charges brought against Paul has nothing to do with Rome. Festus realizes that this is about Jesus. But the Jews are still powerful. And he wonders if he should do them a favor. So he asks Paul, do you want to go to Jerusalem? Paul says, we look at verse 10. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed. To Caesar you shall go. Paul invokes Caesar to protect himself against corruption. Some people might call that cowardly. To that I would say, it would only be cowardly if God expected Paul to die. The only person that was called to die was Christ. God calls Paul to preach the gospel. Yes, self-sacrifice is a very important part of the Christian faith. But at this point, what would his self-sacrifice do? And he appeals to Caesar and he deals very wisely with his rights in this situation. Um, I always think about how, because you have to understand, we live in a time and Paul lived in a time but we so we live in a time where it's confusing to be Christian but it's not unsafe to be Christian Paul lived in a time where it was unsafe to be Christian um and others have lived in times where it's unsafe to be Christian and unjust things were done against Christians like the thing we see here, this is a very unjust situation. Paul is being kept indefinitely in jail for no reason. You understand that, right? He's literally being kept in jail for his faith. It's a very unfair situation. And yet Paul does it by the law. How come he doesn't pray to God? Ask God to save you. To that I ask, where do you think God is in this situation? Where do you think God is in this situation? Now that segues us into our application. This, this topic has been, normally I am very big on talking about and bringing it back to Jesus Christ and bringing it back to the gospel and bringing it back to taking courage. And yes, all of those things and more. 
But we as Christians, we focus so much on the gospel that we do not glean glean from the Bible on how to navigate living in this world. Okay? How can we apply what Paul is preaching and what Paul is doing here into our lives? The first thing that we can apply into our lives right now is the presence of God. And what I mean by that is not, oh, just that God is with you. Yes, 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 God is with you. But where is God in this situation? Look back at your look back in your Bibles. Where is God in this situation? Where was Jesus mentioned in the 12 verses that I read? Was Jesus mentioned ever? So then where's God? Is God not here? Is Paul just going through this unfairly? An unjust situation in a political society that's pitted against him and he's going by the law? There's nothing happening? What's going on here? Where is Jesus in this situation? Do you remember the promise the last time that God spoke in Acts? You might not. It's been a while. But I want to draw our attention back there. Acts 23, 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Now this verb, take courage, is translated better to be, keep up your courage. The word take courage means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger and adversity. That was the last time God was mentioned overtly, where God was doing something. To us, when we read this, when we read this out of context, when we read it and we don't consider what's been going on, because you, you can imagine, it's, this is Acts 23. Between Acts 24 and Acts 25, two years have gone by. And many of us might be questioning, where is God? Where is God in the midst of the situation? While we're in quarantine and the world is flipping upside down, we might forget the God we saw in 2019. And in 2020, we might be wondering, where are you? You were so loud to me last year. You were so loud to me last year. Where are you? Where are you, God? God, now I have to worship in here. And the world is flipping out outside my door. My neighbors are at odds with each other. God, where are you? To you I say, 
Remember the promise of God. Remember the promise of God. The last thing God says was, keep up your courage. Be resolute in the face of danger or adversity. God is in the situation even when he feels like he is not there. And God loves. God loves. God loves the people who are mistreated and the people that are at the bottom of the totem pole. The fatherless, the orphans, the widows, those who do not have a voice. God loves you. He is with you in all things. The confused, the forgotten, God loves you. We see in this day and age more than ever before how politics changes the integrity and the character of people with just words. For example, one thing our Korean community faces so often, and not just Korean communities, but immigrant communities across the country, is the DACA immigrancy, right? This idea that people who have a hard time getting status in our country can have a place here because they are, they're fine. They're just upstanding people who pay their taxes even when the government doesn't acknowledge them. And in the blink of an eye, our country can call them illegal aliens. To those who are hurting from being misunderstood, from being misspoken of, remember the promise. It's easy for us to forget that God is with us when we feel like God is silent. But God is still here. He is still here right now. The second thing is the wisdom of Paul. Christians, we, we have to understand something, okay? When we are in a particular situation, we need to rise to a particular call. We need to rise to a particular call. We need to deal appropriately with appropriate situations. Our faith requires us to love the orphans and the widows. Our faith requires us to love those whom God loves. Our faith requires us to love one another. And our faith requires us to love brothers and sisters. But clearly, even as we see here, Paul himself shies against religious law. The law is the law. And God is God. And what governs our lives is not the law, it's God. What does that mean for your life today? Some of you guys, for some of you guys, it might mean loving people that you might not have ever loved before. For some of you, it might mean looking past certain issues to be able 
to see other people for who they really are. For some people like me, it might mean to love our brothers and sisters no matter what. Now, I'm a very transparent individual. I wish I was reserved, and I wish I could keep quiet, and I wish I could be like enigmatic and elusive where nobody actually knows where I stand on things. I wish I could do that. I wish the only thing that came out of my mouth was Jesus Christ, and I wish I could be like every other second-gen Korean-American pastor where you can't, you can't tell anything um, from what they're saying. All you can tell is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. I'm not like that. Um, so every single person in this room and every single person in the next room and every single person in the other church and every single other person in the area probably knows where I stand on things. Um, and I apologize for that. Um, I'm not trying to influence you with the power that God has given me. Uh, God has appointed me to preach the gospel, not to preach politics. Um, so I want you guys to know that I am actively learning, even though I genuinely believe in the things that I am voting for and in the things that I am fighting for. Because for me, politics is about human rights and it's about ethics. That's just how I was taught. Um, just as a law student, as a government student, uh, my priorities in government are, are, are a little different. Uh, it's not just economically motivated. Um, ethics classes are important, guys. College students, don't skimp out on your ethics class. It's, it's very important. Um, but regardless of all of that, I, as, as, a, as a very strong-minded, strong-willed, strongly opinionated person, I'm telling you that we need to love our brothers and sisters. I need to learn to love brothers and sisters that don't agree with me. It's it's difficult and it's painful. And I, I think I cry about this and get enraged about this every night. Not not loving other people, but about the issues that are at stake with this election. Um, I have to understand where my loyalty is. I'm a natural born citizen of the United States of America. I have the right to become president if I wanted to, or if, if I had the power to. And this country is all I've known, very deeply American to the core of my being, but even more than the foundations of my existence that is core is Christ. And there are people on the other side of the line and on the other side of the spectrum that although they have very differing opinions than me, their core is still the same. What does it mean for us to be Christian right now? It might mean to leave the court stuff in the courtroom and to show up for other people as Christians. It might mean to learn to love one another regardless of what it is. It might mean to figure out how to forgive people that have hurt you with their senseless claims and their ignorance. It might mean to try to talk to people who are different than you because that's what God would have wanted you to do. Because God is not a God that doesn't understand us when he calls us to these freaking crazy things like love your neighbor. Um, he knows. He died at the hands of the people he loved. If there's anybody who should be bitter at us, it's God. Because <laughs> he died for us. When we were screaming, crucify him. You know? So it's from a position of understanding that God calls us to be Christian. 
What does it mean for you guys to be Christian today? Um, on the flip side of that, it might mean to leave your faith outside the courtroom and to be fair and to have integrity in the courts of law. Underhanded political methods, they are not one of integrity. On both sides, nothing is as important as staying consistent with what we believe in. And that matters more in our actions than in our issues. Whether or not you are consistent as a Christian will shine more in your actions than what you stand for. Abortion is a very just cause. Caring for the 545 kids who lost their parents because of our government is a very just cause cause. But what will determine your Christianity and politics is your behavior and how you speak in love. That has been my biggest challenge in this election. Because sometimes I just want to throw people. And sometimes I just want to put it down. I put it down. I'm self-control. Um, <laughs> you know, sometimes I just get a little angry. You know what I mean? Sometimes I just want to kill people, you know? Just kidding. It's not true. It's not true. Jesus loves us all. Um, but we stand here in our Christianness. And we keep the faith, not in our issues, but in our behaviors. And maybe if it means to love people in a court of law, we need to leave our faith outside the door. Last time I checked, I don't believe Jesus shoved the gospel down people's throats. I don't believe that's how he preached the gospel. So maybe bringing our faith into a secular system of law is not God glorifying. That's a challenge and an invitation just as much as I need it. Last but not least, do you fear? What do you fear right now? What do you fear right now? Do you fear suffering? Do you fear conformity? Are you bitter at God? Are you a bitter at God for these circumstances to begin with? Do you fear suffering? Take courage. Remember the promise of God and take courage. Our allegiance is to God. Yes, we are citizens in this country and we need to act accordingly, but our allegiance is to God, not to a nation. And that means that you can take courage regardless of what happens in this election. 
regardless of what happens. I know that this is probably the most political sermon I've ever given, but this is probably an unprecedented, this is an unprecedented time that directly affects the livelihoods of the immigrant church. And that's why I'm preaching in a way that is so politically charged. Not only that, but that's the sermon. (laughs) That was the sermon that God had prepared. And I believe that's because God loves us and God sees us and God knew what was coming for us even before we knew what was coming for us. Take courage. Remember the promises of God. Don't just be quick to forget where you were in 2019. Don't just be quick to forget the way you sought God out. Don't just be quick to forget your first love. Just because you don't see God in the present moment is very transient of us. Remember God. God by nature is everlasting to everlasting. We are the ones that are short-sighted. The intensity and the urgency of the gospel doesn't change. You need God today just as much you did as much just as much as you did in 2019. You need God right now. The world can still flip upside down and Jesus can still come tomorrow. Where do you stand? It doesn't matter whether or not you're red or blue. It doesn't matter whether or not you've done good things or bad things. It doesn't matter if you're in the middle of wrestling with temptations and you're not able to overcome them. It doesn't matter where you stand. It doesn't, it just doesn't matter. Where is God in your situation? Are you remembering the God that was before? Are you allowing yourself to be in tune to what God is doing with your heart today? Or are you closed off to God right now? Look at your life and this world through the eyes of heaven. Seventy years is but a breath in the kingdom of heaven. Know that your life is too fleeting to let politics or your direction in life or the people that you're surrounded by dictate your actions more than your faith. Because we're lucky if we live to 70, y'all. Where do you stand with God? Remember your allegiance. And take courage. And for God's sakes, if you can, please vote. Let's pray. Um, Could we take a moment to pray? Could we take a moment to just press in to what has been moving in your heart in this time? What does it look like for you to be Christian? What does it look like? For you to be a Christian citizen, What does it look like for you to be wise? What does it look like for you to keep your eyes fixed on God and not on this world? For those of us who are hopeless right now, angry right now, so much so that we can't even hear God. Are you allowing God to speak over the waves in your heart? What is 
your motivation for life. Have you even prayed about this election? Have you even prayed about where you stand? Or have you just been reacting to things on Instagram and Facebook? If that's you, man, I feel you. I react too. But we gotta get right before God. Our citizenship is to heaven before it is to anything in this world. What is your motivation? those of you guys who have been having a hard time loving other people in the midst of all of this. God calls us to love one another. What does that mean for you today? Maybe you feel like you're fighting for just causes, but you've got that sinking feeling in your gut. but we gotta fight it. We gotta love God's people. We are all made in the image of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ unifies us regardless of where we stand. Sometimes even in this world as we fight for for justice, as we fight for fairness, as we do things that are quote-unquote wise and following the footsteps of Paul, we lack grace. lift up where we stand with God and where we stand with our neighbors to God this morning. Have we shown our neighbors grace? Can we take comfort in a, in a God that has been in every way as we are marginalized, cast aside, trampled? He took the fall for us. He who knew no sin became sin, became embodied sin. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was cursed to a tree. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.